we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And for this week's episode, we have the audio from a panel discussion we did this week on the size of the immigrant population. The first speaker will be the co-author of the report, Stephen Camerata, director of research here at the Center. And the probably the most important takeaway, and he will explain this in more detail, is that the United States now has the largest share of immigrants in the population ever recorded by the government. We were past the earlier peaks back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and now reach 15% of the total population. Obviously, the number is much bigger and the number matters on its own, but the whole population, of course, is bigger. But the share of the population is now at a record. And so, Steve will first talk about first his findings and also some of the implications as he sees them. He will refer to several figures, graphs that are in the report. They're going to be linked in the show notes, and you can see the whole video if you want at our website at cis.org. Then we have two commenters. The first commenter is Rich Lowry, who's editor-in-chief of National Review, author of a book called In Defense of Nationalism. He's a commenter at CNN, a commentator, and a columnist at Politico. He's going to give some thoughts about what are the implications of this uncharted territory we're entering with the highest share ever. And the second commenter will be Roy Beck, founder and former president of Numbers USA, who will give some thoughts also focusing on the um, people, the groups within the United States, particularly Black Americans who are most affected by this. There's a Q&A that we're cutting short at the end, but it's on the video version where you can watch the whole thing, see the figures and what have you. So we're going to start with Steve giving his presentation about the findings and the implications of his study. We're going to be discussing today what in many ways is the most important issue when it comes to immigration. Our discussion will be based, as Mark said, on a report published by the Center for Immigration Studies last week. Almost all the information in the report comes from government data collected in October of this year, and it's all available at our website. The data show that the total immigrant population, that's legal and illegal, is now nearly 50 million, which is 15% of the total U.S. population. Both the number and the percentage are record highs in American history, as Mark said. Just to be clear, we've never been here before as a country. No government survey or census has ever shown such a high immigrant share of the population. Now, the enormous scale of immigration obviously has implications for nearly every aspect of American society, from public coffers and the labor market to our culture and our politics. 
The government typically refers to immigrants as the foreign-born, which includes everyone who is not a U.S. citizen at birth. Now, I'll use the word immigrant and foreign-born interchangeably in my talk. The above numbers that we just discussed come from the monthly survey done by the Census Bureau for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is often referred to as the household survey. While it may be surprising to some, both the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics are quite clear that illegal immigrants are included in the data, though some are missed, of course. The data show that from January of 2021, when President Biden took office, to October of 2023, the foreign-born increased by 4.5 million. Put a different way, on average, the foreign-born has grown by 137,000 each month since the start of the Biden presidency. This is roughly triple the average increase during Trump's time in office before COVID hit. So it's enormous. The numbers also double what it was per month growth averaged for President Obama. Let's put up figure one and take a look at that. Now, all the figures we'll show during this discussion are in the new report, which again is available at our website. The numbers in that figure are even more striking when you consider that growth in the foreign-born represents net increase, not the number of newcomers. All births in the United States, including those to illegal immigrants, can only add to the U.S.-born population by definition. So the foreign-born can only grow from new arrivals, but new arrivals are always offset by everyone who goes home each year, which is not trivial, and by natural mortality. Since January of 2021, emigration, the people who leave, and deaths had to total at minimum 1.5 million, given the overall size of the immigrant population. Therefore, for the foreign-born to grow 4.5 million, at least 6 million new immigrants had to have settled in the United States legally and illegally in just the last 34 months. This increase has been so fast that it appears to have made the new Census Bureau population projections, which just came out on November 9th of this year, obsolete. The Bureau projected that the foreign-born share was not supposed to hit 15% until 2033. Let's put up figure two from the report, or the, the third figure, I should say. The 15% shown in October of this year is higher than the prior records of 14.8%, in 1890, and 14.7% in 1910, during what is typically referred to as the last great wave of immigration. Now, restrictive legislation in the 20s, and even World War I before that, caused the foreign-born to fall significantly. And then the law was changed in 1965 to allow in more immigrants. But even in 1970, as the figure shows, the foreign-born were still less than 5% of the population. Since then, the share of the population that is foreign-born has more than tripled, and numerically, it has quintupled. As I said, we've never been here before. Now, the long-term growth in the foreign-born since 1970 has been mostly due to legal immigration, the so-called green card. Immigration itself tends to build on itself. As the legal immigrant population grew, immigrants sponsored more relatives overseas. In the 1970s, new green cards averaged about 400,000 a year, 
And now it's up to about a million a year as ever more immigrants are able to sponsor more relatives. The law was also changed in 1990 to allow in more people as well. Now, illegal immigration has grown right along with it. In fact, many illegal immigrants come to join their legal friends and family who are already here. As a result, many of the top sending countries for legal immigration are also the top sending countries for illegal immigration. In many ways, illegal immigration is partly driven by the scale of legal immigration. Now, there was an amnesty for illegal immigrants back in 1986. We gave green cards to 2.7 million illegal immigrants. But because the law was never enforced thereafter, we replaced that population pretty quickly. Now, there is general agreement, but not unanimity, that the illegal population was roughly stable, maybe declined some between 2010 and 2019 at 10 to 12 million people. Now, this is an important point, and I think it confuses a lot of people. Rough stability in the illegal population in no way means that new illegal immigrants weren't coming. Between 2010 and 2019, it has to be the case that at least 4 million, maybe 5 million new illegal immigrants settled in the United States. But that number was offset by the illegal immigrants who went home, the illegal immigrants who got deported, the illegal immigrants who legalized, such as when an illegal immigrant marries an American or wins the visa lottery or gets asylum. So those numbers are substantial. And of course, just natural mortality among illegal immigrants every year. It's a population of over 10 million. There has to be roughly 50,000 deaths each year. So it is not the case that rough stability in the immigrant population or the illegal population is an indication that no one is coming. Now, when COVID hit in 2020, it's likely that the overall immigrant population fell. We can't say by how much because the data, there's problems with the data. But immigration, legal immigration was largely shut down and illegal immigration was likely much lower so that we think that the numbers did fall. But by January of 2021, the numbers were back to where they were in terms of the overall foreign born to what they had been before the pandemic hit. Now, since January 21, the numbers have exploded and illegal immigration does account for a lot of the increase. There's been a record number of border encounters. This is when someone tries to slip past the Border Patrol between ports of entry or presents themselves at a port of entry, but is an inadmissible alien. That is, they have no legal right to enter, but they're asking to enter anyway. Now, the Biden administration has released about 2.7 million people into the United States. These are the so-called inadmissible aliens. Technically, I know it seems strange, they're actually not considered to have been formally admitted to the United States. And as such, they're all subject to deportation, though DHS is choosing not to deport them. And so they're allowed to stay. Many times it's because they have an asylum application or some other immigration status, but they are not formally been admitted. And so that has created an enormous increase in the foreign born. Now, a big reason why the number of people showing up at the border has exploded was due to the president's campaign promises to end Trump administration policies. Chief among them was the Remain in Mexico policy, which is formally known as the Migration Protection Protocols. Now, that had began in January 2019 to deal with another surge of asylum applications. 
Now, since the vast majority of asylum applicants simply wish to be released in the United States, they don't really qualify for asylum, requiring people to wait in Mexico for an asylum interview, which is what the protocols did, significantly curtailed applications. Now, it is important to understand that unlike in decades past, the vast majority of people caught at the border are not from Mexico and can't simply be returned to that country. Now, the administration could have used various procedures to send people back quickly. One is called expedited removal. It could have held many of them in detention before the numbers got (laughs) too big as they awaited their court date. But again, the administration chose to do that. Now, once it became clear that the administration was not going to hold people, was not going to make them wait in Mexico, and was not going to use expedited removal, then the numbers exploded as ever more people came to apply for asylum in the hopes that they too would be released into the United States with some far off court date, which is now a decade from now. That's how backed up the immigration courts are. Now, in addition to those who have been released, there's also a huge number of people who just slip past the Border Patrol. We don't know what that number is, but the Border Patrol has this metric called gotaways. And they're people seen on cameras, but just never stop. Now, those numbers are about five times on an annualized basis what they were before COVID. They've exploded. It looks like we've had 1.5 million so-called gotaways in just the last two fiscal years, many times what it was in the past. And one reason the Border Patrol stops fewer people is they're so busy processing all the border encounters that are flooding the system. Now, why has the administration chose to adopt such policies? A lot of conspiracy ideas or see a big hidden motive, but I think the key reason is that many progressives simply see immigration restrictions as motivated by racial animus making them illegitimate in their view. Though in public, most officials will still pay lip service to enforcement. Democrats also tend to see immigrants solely as desperate people fleeing desperate circumstances, which is sometimes very true, but not as (coughs) rational risk takers responding to the incentives the administration has created. While the influx of illegal immigrants has been nothing short of astonishing in recent months, a significant part of the recent growth in the foreign-born post-COVID is legal immigration. My preliminary estimate that of that 4.5 million increase between January 2021 and October of 2023, 2.5 million of it is illegal immigrants and about 2 million are legal immigrants. Keep in mind, that is not the number of new arrivals by any means. That's just the net increase in the number. The actual number of new arrivals is higher. And of course, there's some undercount, as I had said before, in these numbers. So where are we headed? Well, let's put up figure seven from the report. What this figure shows is that if present trends continue, we would be setting new numerical and percentage records basically every month. If these trends do continue, the total number of immigrants would reach nearly 60 million and 17.3% of the total U.S. population by the end of a hypothetical second Biden term. And that's what the figure shows. These, of course, are levels unlike anything in American history. Now, look, Congress sets limits on legal immigration and allocates funds to enforce those limits for very good reasons. 
The current scale of immigration raises both short and long-term issues. Some of the short-term costs we're seeing play out in cities across the country. New York City, for example, is expected to spend $12 billion over the next three years on social services for illegal immigrants. The impact, the shorter-term impact, the immediate impact on key public services like hospitals and schools are certainly not trivial, particularly in the communities where these folks are being settled. The second set of concerns are more long-term, and I think these long-term issues is where we need to focus our discussion. Let me just touch on a few because there are a lot and, you know, we don't have that much time. As in the past, the vast majority of immigrants come to America in search of a better life, and the high rates of work among immigrant men reflects that desire. But by increasing the supply of labor, immigration does reduce wages and sometimes crowds out U.S.-born workers, particularly in jobs that require modest levels of education. Now, although the wage impact of immigration was once disputed by immigration advocates, in the post-COVID high inflation world, businesses began and their allies began to openly clamor for immigration specifically to hold down wages, effectively confirming what basic economic theory and prior research had found. The only debate now is, is reducing the wages of working class Americans good public policy or bad? But everyone kind of agrees that that's what immigration does. Now, perhaps the biggest labor market issue is that in the last half century, the share of less educated men not in the labor force increased dramatically as immigration grew. There's a lot of research on this question. There's a lot of data, but let me just give you one number to think about. Let's exclude teenagers and focus only on U.S.-born men 20 to 64 of working age with no education beyond high school. In 1960, 7% were not in the labor force, which means they're neither working nor looking for work. By the beginning of 2023, it was 25%. So we've seen an explosion of people who don't show up as unemployed but are working age because they don't say they're actively looking for a job. So there's all these people, millions of them, on the economic sidelines. The total number of people who are of working age is over 50 million who are neither working nor looking for work. But if we look at the less educated, those without a college degree, is where the big deterioration seems to have happened. Now, this rise in non-work, there's a pretty clear consensus, is associated with a host of serious social pathologies, from crime and social isolation to overdose deaths, suicide, and welfare dependency. Now, at a time when businesses are struggling to fill jobs, it may be very tempting to simply argue for immigration or immigrants to fill jobs and just forget about all those on the economic sidelines and all of the economic problems of less educated Americans. But that comes at a cost of allowing these social problems to persist. It is not right to say that immigrants or immigration caused that problem entirely. It probably contributed to it, but it certainly lets us let it go unaddressed. It lets us ignore it. Now, perhaps the most important reason we limit immigration is to facilitate assimilation. And I don't mean by assimilation simply driving on the right side of the road or even learning English or having a job, though those things are important. I mean something deeper. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, himself the son of Jewish immigrants, 
famously said in 1915 that learning English and American customs is not enough. He believed, quote, the immigrant is not Americanized unless his interests and affections are deeply rooted here. And we properly demand of the immigrant even more than this, Brandeis said. He must be brought into complete harmony with our ideals and aspirations and cooperate with us for their attainment. Now, few public figures in America today would express such a sentiment. I think one of the main reasons for that is we no longer even agree on what our ideals and aspirations are. In fact, assimilation itself is increasingly seen as a bad word. As Boston College professor Peter Scarry wrote some years ago, assimilation is morbid among many of our elites. That said, I still think it's fair to say that a large share of the public supports the idea of assimilation, including the kind of robust assimilation that Brandeis outlined over 100 years ago. But as my colleague Mark Kokorian has observed on more than one occasion, it's hard to assimilate immigrants when the numbers are so large and they get such mixed messages about what we want from them. Should they retain their cultures? Should they celebrate American history or accomplishments? Or is America an irredeemable, racist, sexist, classist society in need of fundamental transformation? (laughs) Whether we are talking about labor markets, culture, or the impact on public services and welfare, the most important issue is numbers. Yet as a country, we have great difficulty in discussing this issue. Talking about immigration without talking about numbers is like discussing a budget without ever mentioning what it is you're actually going to be spending. In terms of numbers and their share of the population, America, when it comes to immigration, is headed into uncharted territory. The key question for policymakers and the public is, do we want as a society to go there? Thank you. Next is Rich Lowry of National Review, who's going to give some thoughts about what these numbers actually mean. So I hope everyone's doing great out there. Where I live in the Northeast, there's been this respiratory thing going around, kind of nasty. Actually briefly landed me in the hospital last week. I'm doing much better. It was a a real nice hospital, nice facility near me. Not nearly as many hostages as I expected, though, and the the underground uh, tunnel facility was really underdeveloped. It's kind of pathetic. I, I want to say, before I say anything else, honored to be here with Roy, who's been in the, uh, is in the trenches on this issue every day, and uh, my hat's off to Steve on another really important study. I, I rely on the, the center all the time. I cite it a lot. I rely on it even more than that. I don't think there's really a week that goes by where I'm not calling Steve, Mark, or or Art Arthur, and sometimes I think I'm wearing out my welcome when Mark won't even say hello when he picks up the phone. He's just, yes, Rich. <laughs> now what, Rich? But anyway, this I, I want to underline an issue that both Mark and Steve have hit on. Where's the debate? Where's the debate on this issue? 15% is a landmark number. It's a historic number. It's a number worthy of being discussed and litigated in the public sphere and it's just not. This is an issue that impacts wages, it impacts schooling, it impacts welfare, it impacts politics, it impacts our broader culture. Among other things, national characteristics tend to be enduring, not immutable, but they tend to be enduring. 
Uh, Bob Newhart used to say that uh, being three quarters Irish and one quarter German made him a very meticulous drunk. Uh, so the, these qualities, they, they don't go away easily. And this historic wave of immigration just affects our national life in ways large and small, good, bad, and indifferent. Just a, a little example. I lived in New York for, for decades. And when I first went there in the 1990s, pretty much every cab driver in New York was an African-American. That's no longer the case. That industry is now dominated by a Pakistani and West Indian ethnic networks. You still occasionally come across kind of an old school African-American cab driver. I ran across one of these guys, real salt of the earth, a couple of years ago, and he was haranguing me in the cab with, with all his views that were, some of them were substantially to my right. And uh, at, at the end of this, he's like, you know, and that's what I think. And he fixed me with a suspicious gaze in the rearview mirror. And he said, because I don't know where you're from, but I'm an American. And just to the, the issue of, of Steve hit on briefly, of cost, I mean, you just look at the, the current wave of illegal immigrant immigration now in cities like Chicago and New York. You know, New York, we're an amnesty jurisdiction. We welcome everyone from everywhere. And then sure enough, tens of thousands of these migrants show up and, you know, they, they're unskilled. They don't have family connections the way other immigrants might. But still, you have the mayor of New York City, 8 million people saying our city is now fiscally ruined by tens of thousands of these migrants showing up. So it just goes to how consequential this issue is. It is as consequential or more consequential as trade, as Ukraine funding, as infrastructure, as the climate, as the deficit. All these issues that are routine matters of congressional debate and talked about on the Sunday shows all the time. But this one is missing. And the question is, is why. And I put a lot of the onus on conservatives and on Republican politicians. And it reminds me a lot of the way the trans debate used to be several years ago. When this would come up, there'd be legislation somewhere. We're going to stop these so-called medical transitions. We're going to stop biological males competing in women's sports. And you'd have, you know, Republicans in, in good standing, Asa Hutchison in Arkansas or Christy Nome out there in Dakota saying, nah, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're just going to rely on the experts and the professional advice, which is a way of saying, don't hurt us. Leave us alone. We're not mean people. We're not transphobic. It goes to what my longtime colleague Rick Brookheiser says about Republicans, that in their heart, Republicans think they're wrong, which they do on a lot of issues. And they did on that. They just didn't want to talk about it because it seemed nasty. Now, what happened is you had conservative influencers, writers, advocates pushing on the trans issue, making that kind of evasion unsustainable. And now, lo and behold, last couple of years, we've had a real debate, a debate that the right is in large measure winning. We might, maybe it's overly optimistic, but I think it's, it's not crazy to believe that we reached peak trans. Now, there's nothing like that happening, uh, except for here, fortunately, and, and some other precincts on the debate over immigration numbers overall. And another reason we're not seeing the kind of debate we should is just the sheer irresponsibility and numbers coming over the border illegally. Now, illegal immigration is a hugely important issue. We all write and talk about it all the time. It's one of the issues I rely on the center's work for, but it's not the only immigration issue. But because it's so easy, it's what Republicans have gravitated to. The late great Congressman Sonny Bono, Republican congressman, was asked once, you know, what do you think of illegal immigration? He's like, well, it's illegal, right? Now, it turns out that was a naive point of view, but that's the easy thing 
to say. So th- this, is, this is just naturally where Republican advocacy goes. And I think one reason for the, the political power and potency of Donald Trump is he seems like a comprehensive restrictionist. He kind of plays like a, a comprehensive restrictionist, but he's not. He's really a super border hawk. He's overwhelmingly fo- focused on stopping numbers from coming over the border. And then, you know, throughout the 2016 campaign and at times during his presidency, he would say, we need more legal immigration, you know, and right afterwards, one of his aides obviously served, no, that, that's not your position. It's like, no, it's not. No, no, it's not your position. But obviously, he's not always very careful about policy or numbers. I have a friend who um, I knew an advanced guy for, for Trump when he had, did a big rally in Virginia in 2016. And Trump was back in the green room in Roanoke or wherever it was and uh, was curious about the number of people out there and asked this aide, how many people were out there? Sir, I've never seen somebody. It's packed to the rafters, 3,000 people. Trump's like, 5,000 people? That's great. And then he gets on the phone, Jimmy, I got 10,000 people out there. So anyway, that's Trump. But even he is not focused on this number, on this overall number. And this is just hugely consequential for our society and the beginning of wisdom on it, the beginning of having a debate on it is telling the truth and informing people about what's happening in a responsible and careful way. And that's what Steve and his colleagues have done. And finally, Roy Beck is going to offer some thoughts of his own. I want to touch on uh, both of you point of this, this situation. Have we been here before? And Steve, I'll take, I agree with you and disagree with you about, well, we're, we're in the uncharted territory. We have been here basically before, twice, 1890 and 1910. The percentages were almost just barely below what we are right now. So that's good. We have, a, we have some history to see, well, how, how did we do last time? Now, what's uncharted is the fact that it's, it's continuing. It's continuing to go up because after 1910, we had World War I, which pretty, pretty much ended immigration for three or four years. It picked back up again, but then in 1921, 1924, Congress passed the law and Calvin Coolidge signed it. Actually, it's Harding signed the first one and Coolidge signed the second one to end the Great Wave. So the percentages did not get above where they are now. So what was it? What was it like last time? Well, I began writing, researching, speaking on this immigration issue pretty much full time in the early 90s. Throughout the 90s, I don't think there's ever a audience that wasn't a total border hawk type audience where somebody didn't speak up and often more than one and say, I don't know what the problem is. Uh, as a percentage of the population, uh, foreign born is not much more than half of what it was at its peak. <laughs> of course, that's a, sort of the idea. The, the, tr- the trend was going this way. So to, to basically say we shouldn't be concerned about this trend because it's at this point, the question is, in real policy making, and uh, you, you want to kind of think, well, where are we headed? Well, those kind of people, and I would say most people in Congress, most politicians, most media, that was the point. Not concerned about where we're headed. It was like, well, where are we right now? Well, we're just, we're just barely half of what we were at the peak. And, of course, there's the implication is everything was great. We've been here before. I mean, we've had twice as much. Things were great when we were at 14 point, uh, what was it, 14.8 and 14.7%. Well, it doesn't take much to look at history to know things weren't great. So this is, I want to talk a little bit about where were we? 
in the 1890s and the 1910s, whenever we were just below where we are now. I'll start off by saying that between 1890 and 1910, that area has, was studied by these uh, great economic historians, uh, Hatton and Williamson from Ivy League schools. They're sort of at the end of their careers now, but they, they put their life into studying economic history. And th- this is an astounding statistic. It's a number that they've, they've worked out from their, all of their efforts that the level of immigration between 1890 and 1910 held back urban wages for Americans by 34%. So Americans in 1910, the workers, and that includes the immigrants too, were making 34% less than they would have been making if not for that great wave of immigration. So there were real economic consequences. But I guess the American people were okay with that. Well, no, they weren't okay with that. The great immigration historian, John Hyam, who's usually quoted by uh, immigration uh, cornucopians, loved immigration, but he was a realist too, and he's a true historian. His take on that period when we were here before at these kind of percentages was that from 1890 through the 19-teens, that immigration, that high-level immigration created, and I'm get the words here, immense cultural divisions and violence across the country and also precipitated the greatest success of the Ku Klux Klan. The, the Ku Klux Klan had its greatest success and was a nationwide movement not after the Civil War, not in the 1800s, but it was by the 1910s. The disrupt, the social economic disruption that was caused by having, in 1990, 14.7% of the population foreign-born and having risen so quickly at that point, was violence, cultural division, well, and an increase in various kinds of racial hatred. This is not this is not totally out of sync with what's happened between 1990 and 2010 and 2020. So we've been here before, and we should not be shocked by where we are. Did the politicians, have we been here before too, with the politicians ignoring this the whole time? This isn't uncharted territory, Rich, because there's never been a time that politicians have been this quiet about looking at, or that the news media, news media was full of coverage on this issue. Politicians talked about it all the time. Between 1897, seven years after we hit that first peak in 1890, between 1897 and 1924, either the House or the Senate 18 times passed legislation to stop the Great Wave. 18 times. Four times. They both did it in the same year. And Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, vetoed the first time. Taft, a Republican, vetoed it the second time. And then Wilson, a Democrat, vetoed it two more times. So the American people, through their representatives, other than the presidents, they recognized what was going on. It was a bad thing. And it's a bad thing now. I want to say it's hard to find something to pick at at, uh, Steve's work. So I just want to say, you know, his, his... Using immigrants for all foreign-born. You know, some people, that's a little much. You know, it's like immigrants, is a, that's a legal term. 
and you, you're, you're allowing illegal aliens to be called immigrants. So I want to state that for the sake of brevity, <laughs> you do that. But this is interesting. I have been sensitive to the lawyers who say, oh, they're not, that's, that's not all immigrants. So I, I've been using migrants for a few years. And the news media has, I, I, I kind of like the fact that they've, they're using migrants more than calling illegal aliens immigrants all the time. But I was in a, speaking to a, a grassroots rally last month in Chicago, south side of Chicago, what's going on there. And these are African-American communities, African-American community house. What's happening there? They're, lo- they're losing their community facilities. Their, their, their educational facilities are being overrun. There's all kinds of things are being used to house and take care of all of these uh, migrants that are coming through in various ways. Well, I got my comeuppance on using the term migrants. A uh, woman stood up in the crowd, and, and the crowd was cheering her on. He goes, those are not migrants. These people that are being housed, that the mayor is forcing us to house in our, our centers, those aren't migrants. Just, we are migrants. So that's interesting. And then she, and the, the other people spoke up, says, we're migrants because they consider themselves migrants because their families migrated from the South in the Great Migration. Well, semantics can sometimes get you off. It's, it's interesting to be reminded that, and, and I ask people, how many people here in this auditorium that your families migrated in the Great Migration that happened between World War I and, and 1965? Well, almost every single hand went up. Mm. They are children of migrants. That's the way they consider themselves. And that's the last point is that when politicians, media, religious leaders, black leaders, union leaders finally had a a majority push to stop the great wave of migration and stop this percentage from going up as far as it's gone now to stop that trend, we got a wonderful pause, not a total pause, but, you know, cut in annual immigration by about two-thirds, and it allowed the Great Migration. This, uh, the, the people who think that keeping this trend going is somehow or another humanitarian, it you, means— You mean allowed the Great Migration from the South? The, yeah, not the, not the mm-hmm. immigration way, but the right. Great Migration from the South that allowed— it was Because the, those jobs were there. And they, they could go north, they could go west, and they had huge economic progress until the— latest immigration wave began in the 1880s. So one of the most important things that anybody who's concerned about the the disproportionate level of poverty and near poverty in our African-American population, the most important thing that happened would be tightening the labor market and stopping this trend that Steve has written about. That's it for this week. As I said, the full panel along with Q&A is on our website, the video of it. You can watch it. It's at cis.org. And if you have any comments or complaints or suggestions for future shows, what have you, feel free to just email us at center at cis.org. Until next week, this is Mark Krikorian. <music>